Welcome to the Healthy Hormones for Women podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Gladish, online nutritionist, weight loss coach, and hormone fixer-upper. I'm excited to bring you a weekly dose of information and inspiration, sharing with you simple and effective strategies from health, wealth, and all things personal growth. Get ready to become the master of your hormones and experience vibrant health to live a life of more power and possibility. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you guys are doing well. I'm diving into thyroid today, a topic that I love talking about. And it's really interesting because what you resist persists, if you've ever heard that saying before. And for many years, I resisted working with thyroid clients. Like it was just not going to be my thing. I strictly was focusing on weight loss as well as PMS and PCOS and diabetes, like that was the thing that I was doing. And of course, I essentially work with hormonal issues across the board, but more commonly working with women who were dealing with infertility and PCOS and PMS. And so, of course, I got diagnosed with Hashimoto's and I had no choice but to dive into my own thyroid healing and journey that, of course, throughout that process, I learned so much and had so much personal as well as professional information to share with my clients and to really help assist them in getting better. And so it's just interesting because for years I was like, no, it's not what I want to do. If somebody came to me with thyroid issues, I would send them off and refer them to somebody else and just didn't want to go there. And it's funny, it's almost like I intuitively knew, and I remember so many times sitting in my office saying to myself, there I am referring off somebody else with hypothyroidism, and I know one day this is going to come and bite me in the ass because I'm going to have to really hone in on this and focus in on this. I'm just not ready yet. I just kept pushing it off. It was really interesting. And so, of course, just over a year ago when I fully got diagnosed with Hashimoto's, I was like, all right, here we go. This is now the time for me to start working with women with thyroid. So everything happens in the right time and in the right sequence. I truly believe that. And I'm really excited to have this conversation today about thyroid health. It is going to be one of many conversations we have about thyroid health because thousands, thousands of women are struggling with thyroid issues and many don't even know it. Many are misdiagnosed. So it's really important that we become educated about our thyroid health and that we share this message so that we can bring more healing to more women. So I'm diving into, of course, all things thyroid with McCall today. And we dive into lab testing. We also dive into autoimmune Hashimoto's, digestion and blood sugar, what a healing diet looks like. And she shares this awesome tip, which I'm not gonna tell you, you gotta listen. This one tip specifically for those who have Hashimoto's and have high antibodies and what you can do to bring them down. Something that I've now just started to implement myself. So it's really wonderful to interview so many different people who specialize in so many different health niches because we get to learn so many different types of strategies. And it's wonderful because especially as I'm going through 
my own healing journey, I get to learn a lot of different strategies and tips and things that I can implement myself. So it's really, really awesome. So McCall McPherson is the founder and co-owner of Modern Thyroid Clinic, a thyroid-centered functional medicine practice in Austin, Texas. She is a physician assistant and a recent TEDx speaker and a thyroid patient and expert. Her passion for perfecting thyroid treatment stemmed from years of her suffering due to the mismanagement of her own hypothyroidism. Now she lives, breathes, and thrives in understanding the nuances of proper thyroid care. Her philosophy is simple. There is no reason to still have thyroid symptoms, and she spends her time helping her patients get their lives back and teaching and advocating for the other million suffering who aren't her patients. So let's dive into today's episode. Hi, McCall. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited you're here. Everyone that's listening can't see you right now, but I can. And she's sitting <laughs> in her closet and it's so cute. Yes, I am. <laughs> I love it. You so have I'm, to protect the barrier of sound. Totally. I love it. It's so great. I can see all her amazing clothes and everything. It's awesome. So I'm so excited you're here. I love that we are diving into thyroid health today, a topic that I love talking about. But before we dive in, please share with our audience more about you and what you do. Yes. So I am the founder and co-owner of a progressive functional medicine thyroid clinic in Austin, Texas called Modern Thyroid Clinic. I'm a thyroid expert by way of being a patient. So really, I was 27 when I had my own thyroid crisis. I was already on Synthroid. I was literally going to bed at 3.30 in the afternoon every day and begging my doctor for help and was just repeatedly told that it's not my thyroid. I'm fine. My numbers look fine. And that went on for six months. I mean, it was devastating and hopeless. And eventually I got on the wait list for one of the only integrative medicine docs in Austin back then and saw him. And he really gave me my life back in like two months. So very quickly he became a mentor to me. And now many years later, my jam is giving that back to other people, helping other people get their lives back. That's amazing. And I know you also studied integrative and functional psychiatry. Yes. So actually my background, what I practiced conventionally was psychiatry. I'm board certified in all aspects of medicine, but initially once my thyroid problem was fixed, I started pursuing integrative psychiatry in my practice and did that for years until about three and a half years ago in my integrative and functional medicine psychiatry practice, 80% of my new patients were thyroid. So enough word had been spread about me and my thyroid practice that patients took my information and dispersed it all over the internet. And then I had complete thyroid practice within my psychiatric practice. And I was like, well, clearly this is my calling. So totally. maybe I should do this. <laughs> I love it. That's really, really great. So being that we're diving into thyroid health today, I think that an important area to start is with just a brief overview of why our thyroid is so important for our overall hormonal health. Can you expand on this? Oh gosh. Yeah. So hormones really operate on sort of an upstream downstream manner. So you can end up with hormone dysregulation at downstream levels, and that's kind of isolated. You can end up with low testosterone or low progesterone, and it might be a couple steps 
thyroid is literally at the very beginning, the initiating sort of factor for our hormone production and regulation, our metabolism regulation, our ability to literally break down our food all the way from stomach acid to digestion to be able to metabolize our lipids and blood sugar, et cetera, et cetera. So really what I tell my patients is when you think of hypothyroidism, really think about it like the effects being everything just slows down and dries up. And that's pretty much a summary. I mean, you get significant hormone dysregulation and significant metabolic dysregulation. Oh, joy. Right. It is yeah. a tragic thing for sure. Hence, we're here today. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The good news is that it's all fixable. Amen, sister. Yes, absolutely. So I know that in my practice, and I'm sure you've heard it in yours many times, that women will come to you and say, oh, my thyroid is fine. My doctor said there's nothing wrong with it, but that's really not the case. And so can you explain why this is? And it's really becoming this big epidemic. It's such an epidemic. And I really believe it's devastating millions of women and families. It's just a racket. So there are several reasons, and I think we'll probably dig into these in depth later, but the whole issue is this. From the beginning, there are barriers that keep you from getting diagnosed with hypothyroidism. The first one that most people run into is inadequate labs. So most general practitioners, primary care docs, endocrinologists even, are only checking TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone. And for some reason, I've kind of locked into automotive analogies with thyroid. I have no idea why, but we're <laughs> going to take this whole life through. And I use the analogy of TSH as how hard we're pushing on the gas pedal of our car. If we think about it, that does not ever tell us our speed. We can push hard on the gas pedal to get 20 miles an hour or 100. It's irrelevant. So that really is only telling us how hard the brain is asking the thyroid to work. It's not telling us about direct output. So that's flaw number one. Sometimes some endocrinologists will even check free T4, which is an inactive hormone that we'll dig into a little bit later. Unfortunately, that correlates directly with TSH. So even if you think you're getting a more in-depth panel by TSH and T4, it's just not the case. They really just mirror each other. So biggest barrier is inadequate labs. Second biggest barrier is terrible, terrible, terrible lab ranges. <laughs> And so people can set, stay, in, by my estimation, in a hypothyroid state before they're diagnosed for about a decade, before their TSH will drift far enough outside the range of normal to be flagged with terrible lab work. That's crazy. Yeah. I know. I always think about, I mean, my community knows that I have Hashimoto's and I speak really openly and share my process with that. And I always think how long it's actually been going on for. And I just yeah. didn't know. And I can bet right. that if I went back to my early 20s and had the proper testing, right. I probably would have seen it then. And then imagine people who don't have the medical knowledge that you have, and they just have doctors telling them that they're fine, and they'll go see another doctor, and they tell them they're fine. I had one patient come to me from out of state, and she looked at me, and she said, you are my 19th doctor. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just people lose so much hope by then for such a fixable problem. So you really have to advocate for yourself and seek out information and resources that are valid and valuable outside of just believing whatever your doctor or clinician is telling you. 
So misdiagnosis is common, unfortunately. And what might happen in the long term if we don't address the health Uh, of our thyroid? Yeah. So long-term diabetes and elevated cholesterol are inevitable because we've essentially shut down our metabolism, our ability to break down those things. And so it's a very frustrating case because these people are really struggling with being overweight and exhausted. They don't have the energy to work out. Um, then they're getting complex medical issues purely from hypothyroidism. So to start kind of early symptoms and what our listeners could sort of relate to is fatigue, brain fog, brittle nails, brittle hair, low sex drive, depression, dry skin, constipation, cold intolerance, cracking on the bottom of your feet, like we already discussed, elevated blood sugar, elevated cholesterol, hair loss, loss of the outer portion of your eyebrows. So, I mean, the list really goes on and on. And really, I see a ton of a particular population experiencing these symptoms and writing them off. And they're usually like the new moms who just had a baby. They are likely probably in a Hashimoto's state, but they don't know it. And then they develop hypothyroidism, but they're like, well, I'm not really sleeping. I'm up all night with a baby. And then it's, well, now I'm breastfeeding and now I have another kid. And I saw a woman a couple months ago who said, I made all these excuses and now all my kids are in college and I don't have excuses anymore. Mm -hmm. But she's been making them for like 27 years. So yeah, I mean, as early as you can, find someone who can advocate for true diagnostic measures and support. And so you mentioned inadequate lab testing. So Mm -hmm. can we maybe dive into what is the right testing? What are we looking for? What do we need to ask our doctors for? Yes. So, and I'll, I'll... tell you the link later, but I do have a quick little write-up that you can download for free to have all of this in front of you. So if you're driving, don't freak out. Um, (laughs) Yes. I'll put the link in the show notes for sure. Right. So TSH is obviously important. And if we speak specifically about function initially, so we have TSH, free T4, free T3, and reverse T3. So that kind of takes you through your most important functional information pertinent to thyroid. But then we also have the component of autoimmune thyroiditis that you speak about frequently, Hashimoto's or Graves. Most commonly in the case of hypothyroidism, which is what we're talking about today, you want to look for TPO antibodies and thyroglobulin antibodies. To kind of break this down, these are just measures of components of our immune system that are in particular attacking our thyroid. And we want to have that information because it's very relative to future hypothyroidism or addressing it holistically. Okay. And so I know it can be hard to kind of chat about the ranges because there's so many different labs and each lab has different ranges. So can we get an idea of where we kind of want these ranges to be? Yeah, absolutely. So before I kind of lay out and map out that for you, I want to kind of paint a picture of where medicine is at in terms of lab ranges so people can really understand what's happening and why they're not getting help. Yeah, let's do it. So labs really just take populations of patients and they formulate averages. So there's a couple flaws in that. Every lab is different, including in Austin, we have LabCorp and Quest, and those are the major labs. Quest in my neighborhood is different than their labs ranges are different than one five miles down the road. 
they're all just selecting data sets of patients and formulating averages. The other problem is that they're not excluding people with the diagnosis they're trying to rule out. So they're not teasing out people with hypothyroidism to make ranges for TSH and free T3 and free T4. They're leaving them in there. So now we could have someone who's almost comatose with hypothyroidism averaged in with someone who's hyperthyroid, which really skews our data points. Unfortunately, clinicians, physicians, PAs, whatever, were trained to essentially look at a lab result in front of us and scan it and see if it's in bold or off to the side. If it's not in bold or off to the side, we assume it's normal. Now, the problem is that every lab's range, again, is different, and they're using way too wide of ranges. So what could be normal from one lab would be abnormal from a different lab the same day, the same number. So that's kind of where we're at with medicine. You can't assume that your doctor really understands thyroid. You have to kind of assume that most doctors don't specialize in thyroid, even endocrinologists. They just don't. They're scanning paperwork to see if things are lighting up like a Christmas tree telling them that they're abnormal. So I'll preface it with that very long-winded explanation. No, it's great. But ranges when we think about them. So TSH should be always less than two, ideally closer to one. And sometimes people don't feel good until it's less than one. So by the time someone gets to 4.9 to get outside of the normal average range, they're probably headed for disability part of the time. It's very life impactful. So even patients at a TSH of three come to me in shambles. Um, free T4, I have very narrow margins for, and my margins become more and more narrow every year. So T4, I want between 0.9 and 1.2. And free T3, I want between 3.4 and 3.9 at its peak, which depending on which medication you're taking will kind of vary during that time frame of when you would have your labs drawn. For desiccated thyroid, it's three to four hours. For Cytomel, it's two to three hours. All of those ranges are well within the normal margin. Reverse T3, I want always below 15, ideally below 12. And that's that inhibitory hormone. So you want to keep it as low as you can. Hmm, that's good to know, mm-hmm. especially with reverse T3. Sorry, keep yeah. going. <laughs> yeah. So part of the struggle as a more progressive thyroid clinician is sometimes we get a bad rap that People think we're giving people a bunch of T3, which can have health consequences and we're really ramping them up and over-medicating them. The reality is, is people don't need to be over-medicated on T3. My ranges are extremely conservative, extremely safe, well within the confines of anyone's definition of normal, but it just has to be right. And then people get their life back. I mean, it's very predictable. So speaking of medications, Mm -hmm. what are some of the limitations to the typical thyroid medication? Yes. So, you know, first you pass the barrier of getting diagnosed, right? And then people finally get this diagnosis. They're like, oh, thank God, I'm going to get my life back. Then they get put on a terrible medication called levothyroxine or Synthroid, at least 99% of the time. Levothyroxine is the most prescribed medication in America. Devastating. The limitation to that medication is basically it's synthetic T4. And what people should understand is that T4 is inactive thyroid hormone. It's like crude oil. We can't put crude oil in our car, but we need it to make gasoline to make our car run. If we have all the crude oil in the world, but we can't convert it to gasoline, we're not going anywhere. It doesn't really do us a lick of good. So what we're doing is we're giving millions of people crude oil hormone. And most people that I see in my clinic have what I call a conversion disorder. 
they have difficulty converting that crude oil to gasoline. So what they're doing is they're actually, we're taking this automotive metaphor the whole way. So they're (laughs) stockpiling crude oil in their garage. They're storing it. And that lowers their TSH, makes their doctor believe that their thyroid numbers look great. And all the while their gas tank is empty. It also tends to accrue the inhibitory hormone reverse T3. So they're actually inhibiting the little bit of active thyroid hormone they might get from the medication. And the way that I hear patients describe this, and this is how it was for myself included, I was on this medication during my own thyroid crisis, is initially they feel better and then their TSH starts to lower and then they get a little worse and they don't feel as good as they felt anymore. Then over the course of the next few months, their reverse T3 starts elevating over time and then they feel worse and worse. Some people actually get sick. They get very ill from the medication because their reverse T3 just elevates so much. So if you are on Synthroid, Levothyroxine, Unithroid, T-Recent, these are all synthetic T4. If you're not feeling good, then the likelihood of what's happening is that you're not able to activate that hormone. And so you need a different form of medication. So is this where you might recommend something like desiccated thyroid? Yes. So there are various options in my practice. I don't have one patient on T4-based meds only. So I don't have one patient who's successfully been treated with levothyroxine or Synthroid. Granted, I get complex thyroid patients. So those people don't normally come to me. They can stop at an endocrinologist somewhere. But most people who come to me either are on natural desiccated thyroid, what people will see abbreviated as NDT. Those are drugs like Armour, Nature Thyroid, NP Thyroid, WP Thyroid. Those are actually pig thyroid gland, which is 75% T4 crude oil and 25% T3 gasoline active. And a lot of people do really great on these. There are people who convert so terribly that they can't even handle that ratio of T3 to T4. And those people are really in need of either pure T3 treatment or a mix of T3 and T4. And the T3, the only pure T3 you can get is called Cytomel or Lyothyronine. And then you mix that with a T4 agent and you kind of create a balance. Some people need it really finessed because their conversion is just so terrible. So how would someone know if their conversion is terrible? I mean, obviously symptoms are going to help drive that, but what would we look for? Yeah. So first you'd get labs, right? And some doctors won't run a full round of labs. There's a place that I send people to on my podcast called yourlabwork.com. And you can even do like a forward slash McCall, M-C-C-A-L-L. And you can see my thyroid panel and order it for, I don't know, I think it's like 130 bucks. It's cheap. So what you want to look for to see if you're having a significant conversion disorder is elevated T4. So a T4 above 1.2 or an elevated reverse T3. So if you're a very poor converter, it's in the 20s. If you're an absolutely horrific converter, it's in the 30s. Anything approaching the 20s is pretty significant. You would also see low T3 because it would never fully make it there. So that would be in the twos most commonly. Okay, that makes sense. And so what are some of these things that would interrupt the conversion process? Fantastic question. I love it when patients ask me this question. (laughs) So our body, there's a purpose for reverse T3. It uses it so that we slow down, lay down, rest, and recover. 
So if you think about that, when we're sick, when we're micronutrient depleted, when we're protein deficient, when we're stressed, when we're not sleeping, when we're pregnant, when we're inflamed, our body wants us to go into recovery mode. So one of the ways that it makes us do that is it slows our conversion and shunts to reverse T3 so that we're exhausted and we're too tired to do anything. And so we lay down and recover. Unfortunately, the American lifestyle in general leaves such a high portion of the population with poor conversion that it's my belief that the majority of people with thyroid conditions don't convert well enough to tolerate levothyroxine and get the full benefit of being supported with thyroid treatment. Right. And so I know that there's also a lot of nutrients that are needed to support the thyroid from zinc to vitamin D to selenium. And this also helps conversion as well. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can expand on some of those essentials. Yeah. Yeah. So don't overcomplicate this. I end up with a lot of patients in my office that come in with like eight different vitamins that are all separate. And they're like, I'm just taking so many supplements. Totally. I mean, really consolidate thyroid support supplements. And the two brands that I recommend are Zymogen and Designs for Health. They both make thyroid support. I would get the one without any desiccated thyroid in it because that kind of muddies the water. So I think Zymogen's is MedCaps T150. I can't remember Designs for Health, but that way you get every single micronutrient and mineral you need from the top down, from the brain down. And so that's iodine, zinc, selenium, magnesium, yeah, manganese. I mean, the list goes on and on all the way down to conversion in your liver. So ashwagandha is a great to adrenal component that can help, you know, regulate your thyroid if you don't stay away from, if you're not AIP kind of diet. Yeah, but just buy one supplement, one pill and do it. It'll support. I've actually seen it make a big difference in thyroid patients' quality of life and even their numbers after they've been stabilized. That's awesome. Yeah, Zymogen and Designs for Health are the two brands that I use most frequently. Love them. Yeah, Yeah, they've got really good quality products. It's a totally different game at that level of quality for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so... 90 to 95% of cases of hypothyroidism are due to Hashimoto's. So let's dive into that. You've talked about it a little bit. You've mentioned it. And for our audience that might be unfamiliar with Hashimoto's, I mean, I know they've heard me speak about it many times, but I think it's always great to do this as a refresher. Yeah, let's dive into that. What is Hashimoto's? Yeah. Sometimes people get confused about hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's being the same thing. They're actually two completely separate entities. Hypothyroidism is low-functioning thyroid, and Hashimoto's is the autoimmune disease commonly associated with hypothyroidism or that can lead to hypothyroidism. They're treated two completely different ways. Hashimoto's just means your body is mounting an immune response and attacking itself, and it's specifically attacking your thyroid. So hypothyroidism is treated with medication like we just discussed, but Hashimoto's Unfortunately, in the realm of traditional and conventional medicine, basically people sometimes get their antibodies checked. A lot of the time, doctors don't even check them. And then if they are positive, basically the doctor says, okay, well, you have Hashimoto's. There's nothing we can do about it. We kind of don't ever really need to worry about it again. We're really sorry. You kind of won the reverse lottery. So that's it. Functional medicine and really where we thrive is autoimmune disease. We view it as lifestyle mediated and therefore modifiable. 
So, and really inflammatory mediated, I should say. So if we can determine sources of inflammation and intervene at various points, we can start to shut off that autoimmune mechanism. And that's really beneficial because it's preserving your thyroid gland. If your body is attacking your thyroid gland, it's replacing the functional tissue with scar tissue. And then you're losing thyroid function, making your medication harder to manage. And then long-term, it's just going to be a more complicated treatment case. So that's one advantage to addressing antibodies. The other is that anytime you have one autoimmune disease, your risk for developing another is over 30%. So while we monitor and lower those antibodies, we basically can consider that your relative risk for developing another autoimmune disease. And if we put it into remission, then darn, we're really safe. Yeah. And I see it very commonly, especially there's like a genetic history with my family with autoimmune. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not just rheumatoid arthritis, but it's rheumatoid arthritis combined with lupus or something else. Right. Yeah. And if you want to have any autoimmune disease and let it be your kind of canary in the coal mine, your warning, you want it to be Hashimoto's. And that's usually the, one of the first things to show up. So if you can get rid of those antibodies and watch them come down, you're literally watching your risk for more serious ones like lupus and MS just drop as well. So it's great. I have a unique experience with Hashimoto's and that my clinic's in Austin. Austin is an extremely health conscious city. And so most of my patients come to me already having a pretty healthy lifestyle. About 80% of the patients in my practice are Hashi negative, even when they show up to see me. But initially I had a clinic south of Houston in a smaller kind of town where they had poor access to healthy food and lifestyle. And it was by a chemical plant. 80% of the time there, they were positive and in the thousands. I mean, insane antibodies. So it's an interesting case for the fact that it's really influenceable, right? Clearly, it's not out of our control. We have power to influence this mechanism. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of environmental triggers for sure. So you mentioned inflammation, environment plays a role. You know, what are some essential first steps that we can take to healing Hashimoto's? And I know it can, it's quite the question because it's looking at gut health and stress and environment and inflammation is all of these things, but. Yeah. So part of the way that I practice medicine in general is one, giving people realistic expectations and things that we can pragmatically do. So With Hashimoto's, I want it to be a manageable thing. And so the things that I start with, number one, are IgG food allergies, inflammatory responses from food, not to be confused with the skin prick thing. Those are IgE, histamine, hives kind of scenarios. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for chronic insidious inflammatory reactions that then trigger over time autoimmune disease in conjunction with other things. So that's one thing. I kind of describe this predisposition for this autoimmune activation, like water in a cup. And every bit of inflammation we get is a drop of water in that cup. We don't experience symptoms or autoimmune disease until the cup overflows. So we don't have to get all the water out of the cup. We have to get just enough that we can out that we can handle inevitable everyday amounts of inflammation. So that's it, you know, and food is so influenceable that just that, like we can't control the air we breathe. We can't control our biochemistry, our genetic makeup, but we can control what we put in our bodies. And if we have a list of all the foods to eat and not to eat, we can lower the water level enough that we can deal with everything else. 
Um, so that's step one for me. I think there's, what's the one that people can order themselves everly well, right? Oh, right. The food intolerance testing. Mm -hmm. They use IgG. There's 96 foods for a couple hundred bucks and your labwork.com might have one as well. That's a little more extensive. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know if that's also for Canada. It might be a little bit different, but I'll have to look into that one. Maybe include something in the show notes. Yeah. 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 I don't know if that is Canada inclusive. So that, and then the other thing that I immediately do for all of my Hashi or Graves patients is I put them on glutathione cream, which is glutathione's are one of our body's most potent antioxidants and anti-inflammatory agents that we actually make ourselves. Usually people with active autoimmune disease, it correlates with low glutathione reserves. So I actually just have them buy it. I love Zymogen's glutathione plus cream. I have them put one pump directly on their thyroid, the lower part of their neck twice a day until their antibodies are completely gone. I kind of a huge tip. Can I just say right there? I know so many of the women right now listening are like trying to get their hands on that. And just an FYI, ladies, Zomagen is not a company you can just order online or anything. You do need to get it through a practitioner. So Right. Nicole or myself, we can definitely order that for you. Yeah. I'm like, I hope you have a referral code. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to have some angry people. Not yeah, totally. Them. They can totally order through me. Yeah. So, I mean, that's huge. That right there, I've put people into remission. Just those two things. Lots of people. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Then other people who have higher antibodies, commonly I'll look into things like LDN or low-dose naltrexone. Mm-hmm. which people could certainly kind of Google and read about. It's an immune modulator that just lowers inflammation and autoimmune disease of any kind. And I use that in people who have significant environmental issues that are completely out of our control and we're having a hard time budging antibodies. So that's also a great resource. And most integrative and functional clinicians are familiar with LDN. Yes. Awesome. I've done a lot of reading on that. And not something I'm super familiar with. Yeah. And I feel like it's definitely an area that I need to dive deeper into and also interview more people who yeah. have been using it in their practice. So it's great that you're bringing this up. Yeah. I um, had a patient come in last week whose antibodies... So if we want to kind of paraphrase this, TPO antibodies should minimally be able to get lower than 34, ideally less than nine. But I had a patient come in whose antibodies were over 900 at her last appointment. We don't know how high they were. 900 was the highest read the lab could pick up. Right. She came back and they were 450. So they had at least dropped close to 500 points in three months because of LDN. That's I a mean, lot. Impressive. Huge. Impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially when so many of these symptoms can be really debilitating for people. Like you just want to get your quality of life back and something that can move the needle that much is really great. So you've mentioned food. There's a few things that I wrote down here, some notes. You mentioned food. I heard you say AIP, stress. Mm -hmm. So a few areas I'd love to dive into. So stress, what is the connection between our adrenal health and thyroid health? Yeah. So you'll kind of hear different opinions on this. It really is a chicken or an egg scenario. So a thyroid issue can start with an adrenal issue that can then slow conversion and then just run your thyroid down and and make it less and less efficient. Commonly, I see people on the back end of this scenario of, you know, a decade into hypothyroidism and 
I see that prolonged mismanaged hypothyroidism leads to adrenal fatigue because your adrenals are stressed and taxed the whole time. So it's kind of the two go hand in hand. The adrenals and the thyroid are so interconnected that I used to sort of address the thyroid and then the stress and the adrenals and that level of dysfunction. Now I address them simultaneously because they're just, they go hand in hand. So stress is huge in a prolonged manner for thyroid dysfunction, but also in a conversion manner acutely that would make you accrue reverse T3. Yeah, absolutely. And so diving into food, I love talking about food, obviously being a nutritionist. (laughs) So what are some foods that we must avoid when it comes to optimizing thyroid health? And do you recommend complete removal of dairy and gluten? Yeah. So I am such a person of setting women up for success. I'm such a clinician who stays away from dogmatism because I feel like it leads to failure and people getting disheartened and throwing in the towel. So I keep it pretty simple for my patients, one by utilizing IgG food allergy testing, but I'll tell you after I've done about a thousand of those in my Hashi patients, number one most common inflammatory food in my Hashi patients is dairy. Then under that, a few notches down is gluten. Mm -hmm. then legumes, and then grains, and lastly, nuts. I see nuts only in about 5% of my patients. So I don't advocate for AIP very much because I feel like it can be a struggle for a large portion of the population to maintain. Some people can rock it, and that's amazing. But I try and start with the biggest groups that really propagate Hashi and an inflammatory response. And I objectively, measurably see that being dairy and then gluten. So it's worth it. And then I tell people go off of it for three months. Three months is enough time for that immune reaction to largely leave your system so you can see how good you can feel and then kind of play with things from that point, but be as hardcore as you can for three months and see how much of your life you can get back and how much of your antibodies you can lower. Take a pre and a post measurement so that you can objectively measure the work that you're putting in so that you'll be encouraged to continue after that three-month period. I'm really glad you said three months because I feel like a lot of people do this for three or four weeks and they're like, ah, it's just not working. And it's like, you really have to give it time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Three weeks is not enough for people to see a difference. Mm-hmm. I've been on AIP. I would say I'm mostly AIP, mm-hmm. mainly because I don't eat gluten and dairy and legumes and grains and... Mm-hmm. I used to eat almond butter out of a jar, but I don't do that anymore. So I've definitely cut back on like the nuts and the seeds, but a big one for me is eggs. And I do find it comes up quite frequently on IgG tests. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I keep eggs separate than dairy and I do see them come up pretty frequently. I'd probably say just below gluten. Yeah, it's true. it's sad because you take away eggs for breakfast people They're like, what do I have left? Especially in Austin where we have breakfast tacos. They're like, what? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I love doing a lot of recipe development. So I feel like it's an area when I do have Hashimoto's clients who really are struggling, especially from the food aspect and breakfast. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I got you. I got you, girl. I love that. (laughs) Thank God for you. (laughs) (laughs) So what would a thyroid healing diet look like? Yeah. So I would say 
it were up to me, no dairy, no gluten at all. And that's a pretty bold statement, but that would be where I would start. Little eggs, little legumes. Our body can tolerate a lot of things in moderation after you've lowered that water level in your cup enough, right? You've got to put in the effort in the initially for the payoff in the end. So it would look like that. It would look very, very heavily in plants. So people will go through their whole day or week without really eating any vegetables. And once you start incorporating them into your diet, you actually crave them. Like your body wants more and more and more. And so it's the self-propagating mechanism at some point, if you can just force yourself long enough to eat them, I recommend like meat no more than once a day just because then you occupy that space for vegetables. Everything needs to be surrounding vegetables. And that gives you a ton of micronutrients and minerals and lowers your inflammation. You're not occupying that space with grains and gluten and processed food at that point. So that's kind of my new my new diet that I recommend. I used to be pretty heavy in the meat and I've trimmed back and I see it benefiting me and my patients. That's really great. Yeah, I feel that I know personally, I find that my body goes through this seasonal phase. So Mm -hmm. being that, you know, we're in the summer, I crave more fruits and more vegetables and just lighter meals. So I'm not so heavy on the meat as I might be in like the fall and the winter. You know what? That's such a good point. And I'm so, I'm not attuned to that in myself. And it's something that I want to explore because I think it's so valid and brilliant. But yeah, that is such a good point of this kind of seasonal patterns of eating or like tuning into yourself and seeing what your body is is asking you for at a particular time. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's rare in the winter time for me to want to open the fridge and make a salad. I just so true. I just don't want to. Yeah. You know, whereas in Especially the Especially your winter's cold, right? Oh my I mean, god. Yeah. <laughs> They're terrible. Yeah. And so like in the summertime, I'm not so inclined to want to make soup, right? Whereas in the fall, I want to make stews and chilies and things like that. And I do find it's a little bit more meat heavy. And especially with fruit, again, like in the summertime, I eat so much more fruit than I would in the fall or or in the winter. So Um, true. That's why you're the professional. Yeah. (laughs) So what are your thoughts on goitrogens and women who are like completely avoiding broccoli and cauliflower and things like that? Yeah. I think in medicine in general, there's always a risk versus a benefit analysis. And absolutely the conclusion is, is that green leafy veggies, raw or cooked, the benefits outweigh the risks. So far before you're going to get issues from those, you're going to get issues from dairy and gluten and eggs and legumes. Follow a more kind of paleo-based diet long before you take out those vital kind of nutritional components. That's my thought. Great. No, I'm glad you said that because I do feel that there's a big misconception around it. And I mean, we would have to eat pounds and pounds of it for it to truly have an effect if you're having a few cups of broccoli a week. Right. Yeah. And Mark Hyman agrees with us. So I think- Oh, (laughs) great. I'm happy to hear that. Awesome. So can we maybe do like this breakdown of the steps that we want to take First, we want to get our testing done. And then from there, just maybe break it down. What are these steps that we really want to take moving forward for our thyroid? You got it. So first step is going to be obviously accessing information. So you want to get a full round of thyroid labs. 
what we spoke about, if you can't get that from your doctor, then I would go to a place like yourlabwork.com and get it from there. Um, there's a few other companies that do direct-to-consumer lab analysis, depending on where you are. So you have to get that information. Then you can go and download my thyroid lab guide at mccallmcpherson.com forward slash gift. And you can see the lab ranges that you need to be in for you to be optimal. Awesome. I'm going to share that link in the show notes for sure. And then, so you can interpret your labs. You can see, hey, do I actually have a thyroid condition that I need to find someone for? Or am I actually doing okay and I need to look elsewhere? So then once you decide that, if you do in fact have a thyroid problem, you need to find someone who can help you with it. So there's a few things you can do. Um, one resource that I love to give people is Dr. Isabella Wentz. Yep. Love her. The thyroid pharmacist. Isn't she awesome? So she has a list of clinicians who kind of know more about thyroid than most other people. So that would be a good place to start. The Institute for Functional Medicine also has lists of functional medicine clinicians who can help. I usually tell people, you want to be sure if your labs are outside of the normal range, you want to be sure that you're connecting with someone who has prescribing ability. You don't want to go through this whole thing and need medication and pay a bunch of money and see someone who can't prescribe it to you. So you want to be sure they're an MD or a PA or whatever. Then you address the Hashimoto's component separately, oftentimes with people who are more knowledgeable about lifestyle, diet, all of that. So that's kind of what I say. In the future, I'm going to have a course that literally takes people through this whole process. Awesome. But that's unfortunately not quite out yet. But there's a ton of resources between Isabella Wentz, Amy Myers, some Stop the Thyroid Madness resources are pretty good. And then you can really get enough information to advocate for yourself and move forward so you can get your life back. Awesome. I love it. And a really random question I've got that just came to mind. How do you feel about iodine supplementation with Hashimoto's? So I hear good, I hear bad. I'm not sure what to... I know. It's hard. It's a toughie. I think small amounts are okay. And when you get Designs for Health, Zymogen supplements, they have the tiniest bit of iodine, which I think is fine. I mean, we need some levels of iodine. When I've tested people's iodine, 100% of people are deficient, just like vitamin D. So it's not like you're going to overload on iodine unless you're purposefully doing it. Okay. Awesome. Good to know. And so outside of food, because we know that food obviously has a really big impact on our antibodies and our thyroid, what would you say would have the biggest impact outside of food on our thyroid health? What would be the biggest thing that would move the needle? Outside of food, I would say, gosh, that's hard because it's not objectively measurable. (laughs) Yeah, it is definitely challenging. Yeah. I would say stress probably is, I see my patients who are the most stressed have the worst conversion. So even at that point, even if your thyroid is functioning perfectly, if you're not converting, you're hypothyroid. And I do see commonly people who are very stressed out, their reverse T3 be extremely high, like in the 30s, which is very, very high. Right. And your reverse T3... I know for a lot of women who are complaining about weight gain, mm-hmm. your reverse T3 is high. It's really how your body burns fat. Right. Your metabolism is just basically shut down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's then hard. you've got the cortisol component, which just compounds the weight gain yep. when you're stressed, right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Do you want to dive into that a little bit? That would be really great. I think there's a lot of women that need to hear about stress and cortisol because I know so many of them are stressed. And I also feel like it's one of those areas where it's challenging to implement strategies, especially if you're like waking up to go to a job that you hate every single day. There's so many factors that contribute to our stress that it's easier said than done to let go of. For sure. Yeah, that's so true. You know, there are some things that are inescapable. The most classic example I could give is this like 28-year-old lawyer who was coming to see me who could not lose weight. She had a bit of a thyroid problem. We fixed it. It was perfect, but she still couldn't lose weight. And what she was doing to lose weight was working out an hour and a half, twice a day, Mm. extremely restricting her food extremely. So was still gaining weight. So if you think about that, the calories in calorie out old paradigm, it's impossible, right? Right. But what was actually happening for this young lady is her cortisol, her stress hormones were activated just sheerly from not eating enough food that activates our adrenal glands. It tells us that we're stressed. We're in a stressful time. So she had that going. Then she would work out in these extreme workouts for three hours a day, again, activating her adrenal glands. During that time, it's the same mechanism of action that happens when we're sitting in traffic or we're just chronically stressed. Our adrenal glands are activated, our cortisol is raised. And when you think about that and break it down to regular people terms, it's like taking a steroid all the time. What do steroids do? They raise our blood sugar. They make us gain weight. They make us puffy. You know, they make us hold on to water. And so over years of living that lifestyle, we're 35, 45 pounds overweight before we know it. And even if we try and do extreme dieting and exercising, you still can't get it down at that point. So it's so important to give your body the space to heal and function in a calm sort of atmosphere when you can, so that when you can't, you don't have to. So like simple things you can do to support that mechanism is eat breakfast with protein every day. So your adrenal glands aren't activated. Meditate even 10 minutes a day using like Headspace app that basically teaches meditation in its simplest form. Rest when your body tells you to rest. Eat salt when it's craving salt. Don't exercise in high intensity interval training when you're on an empty stomach or during prolonged periods of time. That really burns out your adrenal glands too after a while, especially if you're stressed in other areas. So it's the little things that you can do to support that mechanism so that when you go to a job you hate every day and you know you're going to be stressed, at least you've covered all these other bases. Absolutely. I love it. And things like meditation and there's so many great apps, like you said. Do you have another one? I feel like I have multiple and I can't even think of their their names off the top of my head. I'm like, okay, let me open I always need a new one. Let me see. I'm like, I'm going to pull up my phone right now. Nope, nothing is coming to mind. Okay. I'll, I'll I, thought, I figured it was worth asking. You no, know, that was a great question. I'm going to have to find some and put them in our show notes. Yeah, <laughs> so I'll thanks. look. Give me more homework. I love it. Awesome. Well, this was super informative. I really appreciate you being here and sharing your knowledge and sharing your insights. And I will be sure to share your thyroid lab guide, your free guide in our show notes where everybody can go access that. And where are you hanging out? Where can people come find you? Yeah. So I heart Instagram right now. You can find me at McCall McPherson, PA, or my website, McCall 
facebook.com or my Facebook page. I'm less active on Facebook and more on Instagram. So come check me out there. Awesome. I love it. And we'll be sure to share that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for being here. And for the women who live in your area, oh my God, they're so lucky. I know. To have your clinic and have access to you. That's really wonderful. So I know. I hope I get to help some extra people from this in my area, but I do take out of state people. Great. They just have to fly in once. So it's doable under the right circumstances for sure. Awesome. Okay. That's good to know. Great. Well, thanks again. Thank you for having me. I had such a good time. Keep spreading the thyroid words. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's such a topic that there's so many different pieces of the puzzle to dive into. And any piece that I can help women kind of put that puzzle together, I'm here to help them do that. And as are you. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, soul sister. (laughs) Anytime. All right. Well, have a good day. Thanks. You too. All right, ladies, hope you enjoyed that episode and are going to implement the strategies and the tips that McCall shared with us today. And how awesome was her tip on using the glutathione cream to bring down antibodies? And you bet I am already implementing that. So you can grab McCall's lab work guide. It's just a free download and it will share the link to that in today's show notes at holisticwellness.ca forward slash episode 22. And to connect with McCall and all of her social handles, of course, you can also find that over on the show notes. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. You got thyroid questions, autoimmune questions, whatever it is, come send them my way. We will be diving into all things autoimmune and Hashimoto's in this podcast. Obviously, it's so near and dear to me, and I want to help as many women as I possibly can. And you can also opt in for the free Healing and Dealing with Hashi's recipe ebook if you haven't done that yet. This is a program that I run with my dear friend, Marnie Wasserman, over at the Ultimate Health Podcast. And we will be launching that program again in the fall. So if you're interested in learning more about that, getting on the wait list to get a discount and to grab the free recipe book, you can get that over at healinghashis.com, H-E-A. L-I-N-G-H-A-S-H-I-S, hashies.com. So head on over there. You can grab the free recipe book and we will be launching that program in probably October. And it's a wonderful four-week program to help women who are healing and dealing with Hashimoto's reverse and get their Hashimoto's into remission. Of course, this does not happen in just four weeks, but it's really about laying the groundwork and the foundation. So come join us over there. And of course, grab all the show notes over on the website. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I'll chat with you guys next week.